The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, October 18th, the Random Acts of Power edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, back from Japan, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa. That was so corny. (laughs) (laughs) It has been so long since I have been in a studio. I hope I remember how to do this. You sound great. You sound like so awake. And that would be the main problem. I've been awake since 2 a.m. So that's (laughs) being awake is not a problem right now. Later in the day, maybe so. This is like late in your day. Yeah. Anyway, we can't forget about Noreen. Hi, Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, I've just been here. No <laughs> no world travel for me. Exactly. You and I, just keeping it real. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we have one announcement for you before we get going, which is that next week we are having a special show about the midterms. So if you have any any pressing political questions about races in your immediate area, about the midterms generally, please give us a call at our call-in number, 646-907-9859, 646-907-9859, or you can just tweet at me and I will read your questions on the show. Okay, let's get going. Our first topic for today, the lawsuit filed against Moria Donegan, the journalist who wrote up the shitty men media list. Second, Amazon's AI is discovered to be sexist, another case of the problem with algorithms. And finally, women in power, new theories proposed by me and people much more famous than me in the latest New York Magazine issue. And then in our Slate Plus segment, uh, June, what do you think? You do it. In our Slate Plus segment today, we will be asking if... The amateur marital body language analysis that many, many people indulged in during the Kavanaugh uh, hearings and and the follow up around his wife, Ashley Kavanaugh, uh, is that sexist? And uh, if you want to hear that segment, if you want to support Slate, you can sign up for a free two week trial by going to slateplus.com slash the waves. All right. Our first topic, Moira Donegan. Last week, Stephen Elliott, one of the men mentioned in the Shitty Men Media List and a former editor of the literary magazine The Rumpus, announced that he was suing Maura Donegan for defamation for $1.5 million. Okay, so in case you don't remember, this was a list of about 70 men that was circulated among journalists with anonymous allegations listed next to their names. Elliot's name had several accusations, and one of them was rape. So that's why he's suing. Uh, let's start with the specifics. June, let's talk a little bit about who Stephen Elliot is and uh, just who he is in the culture, because he's a very particular character. Right. He is mostly known, I would say, in sort of literary circles. As you mentioned, he's the founder and former editor of The Rumpus, a sort of literary website, I guess you would say, mostly focused on books and culture. Um, He's also a writer. um, And if I read the titles of his books, you'll get a sense of the topics that he addresses. They include The Adderall Diaries, A Memoir of Moods, Masochism and Murder. My Girlfriend Comes to the City and Beats Me Up. Happy Baby, a novel. Um, And he has written also essays, many of which talk about his very directly about his masochism, about his experience as a person with drug addiction, um, as a person who struggled with drug addiction, who's trying to get sober now. Um, And he, I have to say, um, he's not a person who I have particularly known much about, except that he is a person who has a reputation of being 
difficult and awkward. He's the kind of person about whom a lot of essays are written. He's like a kind of guy who, even though he's not that famous, he is famous enough for people to write kind of exposing essays about. There's a famous one that appeared in Tin House. Um, he's like a guy who people shit talk with good reason, I would say, judging from these essays. Again, not a person I know, no, per- no first-hand experience, but that's my impression of him. He's also directed some movies. For misogyny. People should talk right. specifically for the way he treats women. Yeah. And one of the things that he has said, one of the reasons he gives for why he couldn't, why these accusations that were made on the shitty men list could not possibly be true is that he's a masochist, that he doesn't like intercourse, that he doesn't like penetrative sex or receiving oral sex, that he's just not into that, that he's a BDSM guy and he's a masochist. And that's just not something he would do, he says. Well, on the one hand, I'm surprised that it took this long for someone to sue. Um, It was the day before the 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 statute of limitations limitations expires. Yes. And he had clearly done a little bit of a media rollout, right? Like he had placed this essay that he'd been long trying to place. um, uh, And then he placed it in Quillette, which is the uh, outlet that has become associated with what's known as the intellectual dark web. And then he um, gave an extensive interview to the journalist Barry Weiss, who works at the New York Times and has also written about the intellectual dark web, um, in which he talked about being a liberal who feels like in this moment, liberalism has moved away from him. Um, so he, this was a, this was a rollout on his part, right? Like he wanted attention paid to the story. Now I'd say that it, I'm surprised that it took this long because that was my very first reaction in some ways when I saw the media men list a year ago, I was like, oh my God, like, um, this is cause when you're, when you're, when you work at a publication, one of the first things you're trained to do is not publish anything controversial, like, um, a rape accusation, by the way, his entries didn't say it, it said rape accusation it was like Mm -hmm. accusations of rape accusation which is weird um but you're trained to not publish anything like that unless a lawyer has signed off on it and you need to do a number of different things to get to publication status and so my reaction just as a journalist was like oh my god these women are opening themselves up to a lawsuit and then you get into sort of but but wait but it wasn't published it's like there are two sets of issues there's Mm -hmm. legal issues and there's cultural issues the legal issues we can do them first because they're smaller it exists in a legal gray zone i mean it's not exactly a publication You know, it's not she didn't exactly publish it like she didn't mean to publish it. It was supposed to be kind of circulated among women as a slightly more official whisper network so that women, I mean, her stated purpose, because she wrote a long essay about her motivation, too, was that women could share information in a teeny bit more of a formal way than they did informally. Now, whether that's a full defense, like, I don't know. I'm just saying it's in a gray zone. Like, the argument against that is that you got to know. Like, she got calls from BuzzFeed almost immediately, although then she tried to shut down the list. So who knows how that works. And then the second legal argument is, is he a public figure or not? Like, is he, by writing about his sex life and writing all those books that you just mentioned, June, like, does he count as a public figure? And does his private life is therefore no longer as protected as it would be if he didn't super share his private life with everybody all the time, including his sex life? So the second thing seems much more clear cut to me. He does seem to me like he would fit either the definition of public figure or sort of a limited public figure is, is might be I might be butchering the legal term, but he, you know, he clearly, by the way, is seeking 
more notoriety. You know, he talks at one point in one of these articles about how he just wanted to like, you know, go away and, and, and get honest work that had nothing to do with, you know, seeking notoriety. And then he does this very concerted rollout effort to draw attention to everything that's happened to him. Someone in my office was making the point that, um, if you were to view, you know, his, his worldview. So, so BDSM is very important to him. Being submissive is very important to him. It's like he's making us watch him like get humiliated, you know, because he, the, you know, the essay that he wrote is not airtight by any means, right? So he, he's saying, Oh, I couldn't possibly have raped anyone because I'm into this particular kind of sex and, or not sex. And, you know, so, but he doesn't address any specific allegations. He says, Oh, these are anonymous accusations. How can I go against them? Um, he, uh, he doesn't really engage with any of the public criticism that exists of him. He just says, you know, I'm a nice guy. Like, was it this one time when a woman put her head in my lap? Is that why I'm being accused of rape? He sort of steers the conversation in such a way that it's very different. Yeah, but just to be fair, like, nobody actually accused him of anything. So who is he supposed to apologize? Like, I'm all for, like, the apology and the atonement, but, like, to whom? Like, there isn't anybody to apologize to. It's not like a Brett Kavanaugh situation. There's nobody's name and no specific allegation attached to any okay, of Okay, but but there are public allegations. Like, so the, this Claire V. Watkins essay in Tin House a couple of years ago goes in pretty deep on, like, him being creepy. Someone someone um, he worked with talked about how he came at to... Rumpus. Ed Rumpus. At the Rumpus. At the Rumpus to you know he he what was it forced her under a couch it was a it was a very odd yeah like she was hiding under his table yeah yeah it was liz lens also wrote an essay who's now the currently the editor of rumpus about what did she say he hounded her and hounded her and wouldn't take no for an answer and she ended up hiding under the table you're right so there are people he should apologize to but he's presented himself as extremely confused why anyone would ever think that he would exist in a continuum of behavior where this has happened i'm not saying i'm not saying that just because he's been odd and aggressive and maybe even assaultive in other ways that it means he has committed rape. We don't know anything. We don't, you know, and like on an anonymous list, someone could have just put that. He's absolutely right. Someone could have falsely accused him. However, I find his sort of defense of himself to be completely disingenuous and he's not grappling in any real way with like, okay, how have I presented myself to the world? And even even in his essay in Quillette, he talks about like, oh, you know, so one of the items on the list was, um, you know, I've I've invited people over to my house sort of unbidden. And he was like, of course I have. How could any invitation be unbidden? And he was sort of hung up on like this definition of what an invitation was versus like the empathetic moment of putting yourself in someone's shoes where like your boss is like insistently, maybe creepily saying, come over, come over, come over. He just was sort of like you know, saying on the legal definitions. Right. Right. Which is effectively like having just listened to the Juanita Broderick, you know, last Mm -hmm. episode of Slow Burn. It's exactly the same thing. Like, I need something from you, Mr. Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton. I need you to help me with my, you know, home care, whatever, like with some specific policy issue. And then he he insists on coming to a room. It's a it's a like an old story. And and not to relitigate this because it is the, you know, the oldest and least interesting thing. But we have, you know, we all of us when this when this shitty media men list came out expressed like this is not cool this is not due process we are not in favor of things like this list i think i don't mean to speak for all of us but i think we all express that feeling but that's Although, and that's another but then at this point for him you know a lot of people are like what's his motivation why is he doing this is he just trying to bring attention to himself at the same time, I think, well, if you believe that you were falsely accused, that you that you've been defamed, maybe the maybe you should make a claim for defamation. Like, you know, 
do you mean it? You know, yeah. Do you mean what you say? If you mean what you say, take action. And so in a way, as much as my first response was, dude, why are you bringing attention to yourself? Well, because if he is serious that he is, you know, that that he truly believes he's not guilty, maybe he should. Yeah. And he exists in this, like, yes, he's well known. Yes, he's had books published and maybe he's directed movies. But it sounds like his economic life is more precarious, certainly, yes. than that of like Charlie Rose. Right. Yes. And so this this has meant so maybe he sat with this for a while, watch his bank account dwindle. He talks of watching opportunities go away. I I understand right. fully why why if he's if he's being falsely accused, he would have this reaction. Absolutely. On the other hand, in his writing about it, he has given no indication that he's actually grappling with what he may or may have done in mm-hmm. the, like how other people may have seen his yeah. actions. Now, so back back to the list itself. I mean, I. I am all over the place in my feelings on this list, you know, like this is the worst case scenario. Right. And when you put put on an anonymous document that you're accusing someone of rape, that's like a it's a really serious thing to do. On the other hand, when you go back and read Moira Donegan's essay on why she did it, I sort of like am caught up again in the idea that we did need something radical. It was a radical moment. And maybe we're out of this radical moment. But there was some value that, that she and her friends felt so outside of the power structures that they would never be paid attention to and were shocked that that they were paid attention to. Now that's vigilante justice, you could say, but um it's not it's not as clean cut for me as like the list was bad and everything on the list was bad. And which I think I've evolved on that in the last year. Yeah, I've come to sort of the list, you know, the list served a, an important purpose. I find her reason for publishing the list completely convincing and that the fact that somebody would have picked it up in this atmosphere that like BuzzFeed would get a hold of it in an hour. I can see how that would happen. And I could also see how she would get sued. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I feel like it is vigilante justice. Yes. And also you 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 can get sued. Like mm-hmm. it's all of these things are simultaneously true. Like something got published that accused a person of rape with no accusation in charge, which had a significant effect on the person's life. So it's, you know, for him. And I also think that people should start a GoFundMe campaign um, by people i mean women and support her they you know have, like all have, this is yeah. how it all works and, like yeah. and that's th- that's really striking that as of tuesday which was the tuesday morning which was the last time i looked you know the, that crowdfunding campaign has raised more than a hundred and eight thousand uh, dollars robbie kaplan who famously won uh you know the the marriage equality decision uh is is representing donegan i mean things are happening it's this is going to be if not the forum a really big forum for really hashing this out on a larger scale just two quick things one is would you guys have been more sympathetic just as with brett kavanaugh if stephen elliott had said yeah i'm an asshole i have not you know i have put women in uncomfortable positions in my life but i didn't rape anybody i'm nodding vigorously I really am. Yes. I, I, it's just, I, yes, the the way that he grappled with it slash didn't grapple with it makes me so mad. The deliberate omissions, the like being, it's like he wants to be his own defense attorney rather than being like a human being mm-hmm. here. Not that defense attorneys are not human beings, but, <laughs> but they are acting to in the interests of their client and in these legalistic ways and they have to make a clear argument. Yeah. And he's he's not thinking about the people on the other end who yeah. he may or may not have hurt or, or like going through that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there's a distinct lack of empathy. There is also like these, there, there's a certain, I don't know, like I hated when he judged Donegan's motives. So it is extremely hypocritical for me to judge his stated motives but 
you know, when he mentioned in passing that he's trying to get sober, that is, in a sense to me, like saying, hey, you know, I wasn't always in full control or even aware of what I was doing. You know, it's almost like an implicit defense without going to the effort and the empathy of, of really, you know, offering restitution, offering apology, just, you know, examining your own behavior. Now, why do you guys think he's the first person to sue? And and what do you think of the reaction of other men on the list, some of whom spoke anonymously anonymously to Bruce Spencer at the cut about what they thought about Stephen Elliott? Well, I thought those five, six testimonies answered your question perfectly. Um, they were just full of, like, shame and repressed anger, like a lot of, you know, there was a couple of people in there who said, well, I didn't do what the list said, but I I support women. Like that was the most like confused. I actually love that. And I I wanted it to be like 50 times longer because everyone was in such a state of defensive, like stuckness. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, oh, there is a lot to say on this topic of what the men are thinking, because because those little testimonials got you about like a centimeter in. But there was clearly a deep world under there. At the same time, like, we got those five because I guess those, like, people who had men who had that point of view were the ones who were going to talk who were the, or one who knew that was right. their point of view they needed to express. Like, those people who are going to maybe be more, less defensive or more angry, more mad, more, just more riled up probably are the ones who are not going to talk to anybody about it. Yes, but they also, right. it's true, have not sued. Like, right, right? right He's, this right. is not a class action lawsuit. Mm-hmm. This is one man, um, which which I do think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And he's suing Moira Donegan and 30 and Jane Doe's. You know? No, not even 30. It's just like they have to figure out how many right. people, I think it's viewed or edited the spreadsheet, you know, which Barry Weiss, who wrote the New York Times article, pointed out, included her, um, includes a lot of women. So that will be fascinating to watch play out. I mean, I do think, Hannah, you're right. This We're a centimeter in. We keep having these bad versions of men grappling with it. And it, it's not, so it's not men grappling with it. It's men um, keening about their ruined lives, right? But not even in yes. an interesting way. It's just like over and it's John Gameshi. It's it's Hock, John yes. Hockenberry. It's it's now this. and And like there is... There is room for something really interesting, just editorially. Yeah, it's Caitlin Flanagan's story. That was the single, and we don't even know who that guy is, and he's anonymous, but that is the single moving, like where you are genuinely emotionally moved and recognize that somebody has gone through a sincere transformation and cared about the person they hurt. One prominent example. Wait, explain that for people who may not have read it. Okay, so this is a story that Caitlin Flanagan wrote in The Atlantic, which was then picked up by The Daily Podcast. I would suggest you listen to it on The Daily Mm -hmm. Podcast because she's very moving about it. And she had had an incident of sexual assault and described how the person sort of tracked her down to apologize to her. Mm -hmm. Now, this person is not a public figure. She was a teenager when this happens, but just because of the... The, the nature of Caitlin Flanagan's imagination and gift with words, you really do feel that this was a transformative kind of apology. And you also then feel how missing this is in the current moment, that after all this time of Me Too, the number of apologies like that amount to zero. That was the only one I heard. And so it's just kind of amazing, like and even, maybe years from now. Even in that piece, which I actually have not read the piece, I should confess, but I listened to the episode of The Daily 
what's really striking is how much of the empathy on display is Caitlin Flanagan. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. she's, you know, she's interpreting by, you know, resorting to empathy. So it's like even now it's really the woman's view of the man's view. Like, we're still right. doing the work. That's a good point. What, just, the one last thing that I keep thinking about is, okay, we're at the end of, not the end, but we are um, sort of deep into this Me Too movement. It's officially a movement. It's maybe not as much of a radical movement as it was, was. And like, what are the demands of the movement? It's just an apology, right? Like there's, we've gone from asking to like upend the whole system to, to like, can say you you're ch- sorry. Yeah, say you're sorry nicely. <laughs> say it like you mean it. And I <laughs> Like, <laughs> damn it, emotional work. We always have to do the damn emotional work. All right. Well, listeners, if you have any examples of apologies in your life, I would actually genuinely love to hear them because they are few and far between in this world. If you have any examples of a sincere apology you've gotten for a moment like this, please share it with us and perhaps we will read it on the air. We don't have to use your name. All right, our next topic, Amazon AI and encoding sexism. A recent report revealed that Amazon decided to abandon an experimental hiring tool that used AI to rate job candidates, partly because it discriminated against women. Whew, so depressing. That raises the larger question. (laughs) Algorithm, even algorithms don't like us. What is the deal with algorithms and how much should we trust them? So, Noreen, can you just um, start with the basics? What was this algorithm trying to accomplish and what happened? Yeah, so this is so fascinating to me. So this algorithm was trying to kind of take the work out of sorting through job candidates to move it from human resources, right, to computer resources, essentially, to say that people's resumes can truly be sorted through um, without a human touch. So the issue became that when Amazon's AI was thinking about what an attractive sort of competent candidate was, they had only past data to rely on. Past data, you know, Amazon, most like many other tech companies, hired a lot of men. So the successful engineer's resume would have certain male characteristics. So the AI you know, the most blatant example was anyone who had a women's college on their resume. It was <laughs> just like that. toss them out or anything that had like the word women in it. The AI would just toss it out. Just like it's women's chess champion out. This is like something out of a satire. First of all, they were trying. They were like, ooh, you know what would be great if we don't have to be face to face with the people we are trying to hire? Like, I also cannot imagine that being a desirable outcome. Like hiring to me seems such an, you know, you're going to be working side by side with this person. Are they like a, you know, are they like a nice person? And I'm sure that part of this was like, well, we're going to remove the human bias, you know, because Mm -hmm. there have been so many. It's always that. Right. And there have been so many studies that like, you know, people want. That that the term culture fit right is such a can be such a stand in for like I just want to hire someone I'm comfortable around, which often means someone from your in group, right? Uh, so th- I do believe that this came from the best of places, but imagine thinking that this was the solution that you would not look a person in the eye, right? Um, so I sort of I'm a little bit glad it blew up <laughs> in their faces, and that you know they were open about it. They yes. didn't need to you know express this. They're getting a lot of positive you know attention for you know admitting to the faults in their algorithm but but they're not alone so i think this is so fascinating the fact that algorithms in general rely on mostly open source data sets so a really famous example i guess is the trove of enron emails because of the enron lawsuit those are in the public domain and it's like something like 1.3 million emails that show how people in an office interact 
Um, so because of that, uh, for 10 years now, algorithm, or more than 10 years now, algorithms have been sort of learning from those emails. Like, this is how the humans talk to each other. But Enron is also this, like, Texas, like, big business. And a huge scam. Huge scam. <laughs> right, right. It was involved in a cover-up. And so the AIs are learning to talk like the worst people. So the data set is Are you not... saying that Texans are the worst people? No, I, I love Texans, um, some of them. But um, <laughs> but, but I, I, Enrons? I don't know yeah, about Enrons. Yeah. So the same data set apparently is also of great use to um, academics studying gender relations. So it's like mm-hmm. they're both like studying misogyny and uh, machines are learning how to be humans from it. It's just like, this is hilarious and sad. I mean, in a way, like, I don't, I don't know what we were thinking. Like we already understand. I feel like what we're saying here isn't new. We, I hope that we understand that algorithms encode whatever sexism and racism already exist. If people don't understand that you really go, should go read that 2016 ProPublica. There was a, the, the most, Excellent work done on this was done by Julia Angwin for ProPublica, where they basically did this several-year investigation trying to see whether the algorithm that was determining whether people were likely to re-offend was racist. Now, she says... I've heard her speak about this thing because it was ama- it was an amazing investigation. The person who created it was like a lovely person who you wouldn't say was racist. Like they were trying incredibly hard, as you say, Noreen, to fix a problem, which is that it seemed that they had psychologists doing it, but there was too much like human bias. Mm-hmm. And the algorithm was way more racist and way less accurate than the human beings who were not that accurate to begin with and somewhat racist. So it just goes to show how it works. Now, why? Let me read you the questions that they asked in order to that they had that the algorithm made its decisions based on. Were your parents sent to jail? A hungry person has a right to steal. If I lose my temper, I can be dangerous. Now, you can already start like there's so much like culture, history, sort of ideology, all sorts of things that go into the answers to those questions. So you're not getting clean information. Basically, or, you know, and, um, and this is and this is still happening. It's not like, oh, this has been identified as a problem. So that's not going to happen anymore. There's so much, you know, again, like from a, a righteous point of view, a desire to avoid human bias. And at the same time, some kind of weird magical thinking that if it's an algorithm, it's completely separate from human bias when it's just it's an it's a reification of human bias. I mean, unless we and mm-hmm. unconscious bias yes, because of what yes. Noreen just said. It's like yes. it's just picking up cues in our language that that like we correct for like humans sort of like we're aware that we have unconscious bias and we, we correct for it somewhat in institutions and structures. But the algorithm can't do that. And there you know? are and there are, you know, real values. It's not just about attitudes. So, for example, there was on a recent episode of If Then, which is Slate's tech podcast, they talked about how in California they got rid of cash bail. And that was a progressive move because it is not fair that some people who cannot afford to pay a sum of money sit in jail, whether if people who can afford to give over money do not. But instead, they made it, they used artificial intelligence to do a risk assessment. And among the factors in the risk assessment were, um, you know, have you been pulled over by the police? Well, you know, I don't drive, but if I right, drive right. as a white woman, my chances of being pulled over, regardless of my driving skills or my criminal intent, are nothing to do. It's about police attitudes. And it's about the fact that black and brown men, especially, get pulled over constantly with 
without cause. And that, that you know, a progressive administration saw, you know, didn't, didn't see that as a problem, I think speaks maybe to like, attitude, you know, the fact that I know, I don't need telling that, uh, you know, the criminal justice system is biased, but I think some people don't think it is. And that's and that's how these things still happen, like at really high levels. No, the deeper philosophical question of this this algorithm problem, because I hope listeners, we all understand algorithms are not neutral. Everybody understands that. Okay, so the bigger question is though, which we did a show about in Visibilia last season, <laughs> is that all algorithms, even if we perfect them marvelously, are determining the future based on the past. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of anti-progressive in their very bones. Like all they have is what already happened, you know? So if I were to say, like the story we did at Invisibilia is a woman who had been raised by a father who was a crack addict, but and then she herself had slipped up a bunch of times, but then like sincerely tried to change her life. And the question was, could she become a lawyer? And the algorithm would say no, you know? Algorithms deny possibilities of change, like heroic change, switches in moments. It's just like what was is what should be. Mm-hmm. That's the ideology of the algorithm. Well, what I want to know is, is this an opportunity? This is like a science fiction plot. But is there an opportunity, like the social justice warriors science fiction plot, but is there an opportunity for true utopianism that you don't construct it on, like, is is there a way, this is me knowing nothing about tech, is there a way for someone to not work off of one of these existing data sets, right? Is there, or is there a way to select through the data set so that you can build an algorithm that um, is super idealistic, right? That like, that can you tweak the algorithm? Like don't, don't make the algorithm neutral, make the algorithm better than humans, right? Like make a, make, make an ideal algorithm, not like our worst selves. But there's so much, you know, it's all, it's all subjective, like things that we would consider ideal. Even some of our listeners might think would be undesirable. And one of the things that's why I'm saying social justice warrior, like have a vision, go for it, even if it's not my vision of it, but like attempt to make a, a, like a, a really righteous algorithm. Well, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, we always, you know, and I don't have, can we give it a not female name? (laughs) <laughs> that would be the first. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> One of the things that strikes me is, you know, we give companies like Amazon the benefit of the doubt. Why Why would we not? Uh, no. <laughs> but, um, but it's also so easy for a company that wanted, that was really happy with traditional patterns and really was not upset if women's co- pe- people who went to women's colleges were thrown out or the word women disqualified a resume. I mean, we shouldn't act like everybody is actually looking for this vision of fairness and progress that, that we have in mind. It, this, you know, because um, algorithms and artificial learning are very rarely transparent, either for proprietarial reasons or just for, you know, for the company that's developing them to have an advantage. We don't know if all kinds of ill intention, which sure could happen in a human hiring situation, but there are laws that in theory at least prohibit uh, discrimination in hiring when humans do it. We don't have laws that dis- that outlaw these things in artificial uh, in AI kind of situations. Yeah, I, I don't right, know. So we, I think we're spending too much time trying to fix humans and that the, the real answer is to try to shape the algorithms that then are inevitably shaping human interaction more and more and more in the coming decades. 
All right. So listeners who know something about this, uh, we need your help. Is it possible to design an idealistic algorithm? I just had a really good idea that's pleasing me, and I really <laughs> want to share it with you guys, which is that we should call it Brett. So you could be <laughs> oh like, Brett, play Bodak Yellow. Now, Brett. <laughs> Brett. <laughs> so oh, I'm so happy with myself. All right. <laughs> So uh, New York Magazine published an issue about women and power to which I write, wrote the introduction. And it's it was interesting experience for me because I haven't written it. I don't write that much anymore. You uh, do, but it was just right after for the, audio. Well, just for audio, but I don't like write, write for magazines. And it was right after the Kavanaugh hearings. And when I was still in that rage and thinking like, have we really gotten nowhere after all these years? It was weirdly an essay that just like poured out of me in like an hour. You know, that never happens. These things where you just like sit down and it all comes ruling out. Like, are they still ruling the earth? Um, but but I'm afraid that what I came up with was um, maybe anti-feminist. So that's what we'll discuss today, <laughs> which is that women are chronically ambivalent. I mean, I try and explain it and I try and come up with a theory. We don't just have to talk about my essay. There are lots of like amazing essays by by like really actually famous, really famous people. So we should talk about those. But um, but I guess it's the it's the ambivalence that I want to talk about, yeah. like the sense that um, that we are uncomfortable around power and that even in moments of, of power, we find it hard to claim them. And I and, and, and I gave a personal example from my own life, which is that when I was named host of Invisibilia, um, I don't understand the radio world that well i don't really know like what the terms mean or anything like i just what you know i was real i was super new to it then and i just had a panic attack like what do you mean host like can i just be a reporter like why do i have to be host that's scary you know and i really had a panic attack and and just in writing this essay i was like that's what i mean like it shouldn't be that hard you know i've been a journalist for like 20 years by then like it shouldn't be that hard so so that's what i meant by ambivalent and i'm wondering if you guys if you guys felt that or that's just my own personal experience which i was extrapolating onto the world so hannah there was one line in your piece that i i'm gonna say i disagreed with it but like i i had a like a i i rankled at it somehow and I, can i read it to you so that you can explicate it a little bit and, and sort of talk me off the ledge no, you can. I'll keep you on the ledge. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll push me. Okay. So, yeah. so here's, this is the line that I, as I say, rankled at. So there is some irony in this political moment that when women have the collective power to fell titans of the patriarchy by the weak, they are using the power to insist on their own powerlessness. Now, this was a reference to something that Maria Gallagher, one of the, well, the sexual assault survivor in the elevator with Jeff Flake, she said, you have power when so many are powerless, which is not how I see that. That quote does not say to me what you said it says or what, what <laughs> doesn't doesn't mean to me what you say it means. So tell me what you meant by that sentence in that piece. I knew that sentence was the rough one. Um, I think um, that is a provocative sentence. I, I it wrote is. it in a kind of like grammatically complicated way. Just to just to, <laughs> to mess with us, <laughs> maybe people wouldn't understand it. What I was saying, you're using fully. your power there for evil. My grammatical powers for evil. Um, I um, what I meant by that is that 
There are two things happening right now. One thing is that there is a recognition, I mean, in the Me Too movement, I'm talking about specifically in sexual assault, there is a recognition of the ways in which women have been taken advantage of and which in which men have been entitled, um, entitled to their own power. Uh, but also there are victories. Like also it's just, it's just kind of amazing. Like there's this collective power of women to actually just shake the earth right now. And I feel like we feel the first and we don't feel the second. Like we're much more inhabiting uh, option A and not so much inhabiting option B. So I'm just noting this sort of weird power powerlessness irony in this moment because we don't actually have that much power it turns out right brett kavanaugh is on the supreme court donald trump is the president of the united states charlie rose is gonna make a comeback right like like and he's a millionaire right women in this moment we are able to control the news cycle but when it comes to really entrenched power it seems like we can't actually like we don't have as much power as you're implying in the sentence. And this this gets me to what I so Hannah, I actually really did disagree with your essay too. Um the some of the premises of your essay. And and your example of, okay, like I've just been named host of Invisibilia. Do I deserve this? I don't think I deserve this. I feel that all the time. Of course I feel that. But it's not it's not because you or I are as ambivalent about power. It's because we like live under a system that has conditioned us to feel that way, right? Like in the individual moment, we might think that we are women taking over the world and so good at our jobs most of the time. But but the like click in our brains when we actually get power that makes us feel like we don't deserve it. That's not our fault. That's that has nothing to do with, you know, our gender. That has to do with like the conditions under which we've been raised and live our lives. I 100% agree with that. I mean that that is in the essay that's like the next paragraph. It's like <laughs> the we the reason we feel that way is because we are punished from feeling any other way. Like that's, you know, study after study after study says there are such harsh social sanctions for women who feel their power, like who do what I'm saying, right. you know, which is why I like end of that teeny tiny like Mary Beard solution. There's like that teeny tiny way that But she you rejected that did you so explain you, yeah. it for right. No. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm really for that. Um, Mary Beard, uh, who is a fabulous classicist slash very outspoken feminist, and is on the, the UK, on the TV in Britain like every other day, which is crazy. Like just the way she yeah. is on TV. Like uh-huh. there's nobody like her in America mm-hmm. who gets that much airtime. She's amazing. Anyway, so Mary Beard wrote essays about women in power. Uh, she gave lots of classic examples to seal the point that indeed. <laughs> Men have more power than women and always have and have actually, you know, have actually the the history is of silencing women and preventing them from having power. But one way to take that back, she says, is to turn power into a verb. And so the reason to do that is to do power rather than to have not a possession and not a character trait. And the reason for that is because we are we are just kind of stuck on this idea of genius and power and these ineffable qualities as belonging to men. So and it's very hard for us to shake that idea. So instead, just kind of break them down into tiny little pieces and be like, I did a power today. I did an act of power. That was an act of power. And so it won't feel so uncomfortable and and discordant with your sense of who you are. You can be like, well, I did a power today and I did a power yesterday on my boss or whatever. I know it sounds ridiculous, so so I'm not going to keep saying it. But it is an interesting idea. Well, I sort of want to, first of all, define the terms here. What do we mean by power? Because in your essay, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, 
outcroppings of power that I would consider more selfishness, right? Like it, what kind of things? Oh, you know, um, well, I hate to pick on your husband, but you were t- you were saying, you know, why does my husband not feel guilty than that he's leaving three days a, a week to work and I and I don't? Um, what are what are some other examples in that? Or you know, why why don't women go to strippers? Like what these are like not the greatest outcroppings of male power that that you're citing. And I guess, but I was having a hard time like untangling selfishness from yeah. power, and I, I guess I was feeling that selfishness and power have something to do with each other. Well, and, and entitlement and that, is rolled up in that, right? Okay, but so mm-hmm. I last night I was thinking about this and talking with someone about it. Do you think power is control? Like that was sort of what I settled on that that power is being in control of a situation, and so that does fit with your Mary Beard kind of thing that like okay i controlled that situation i got the outcome that not necessarily the outcome that i wanted but the outcome that was best maybe um but so i i just don't know that that power can be these little bumps um you know i think i think it is like being in charge of a system and getting and getting control of a system i think what what women can do differently is what it looks like, right? That like it won't be going to strippers, that it might be like <laughs> settling on a common better outcome rather than this sort of selfish act that like, you know, just props you and your buddies up. You know, one thing I wanted to say is that um, my response to that sentence and maybe to the piece generally, but especially to that sentence, it reminded me of what I know is a superficial response to your book, The End of Men, of like saying, well, you said it, the end of men is here, but well, they sure seem like there's plenty of them around and plenty of them in power right now. Like, I know that's a superficial and, you know, just a kind of lame reading of your thesis, but it is it, like, I think that's what, what sets people off of like, <clears throat> I don't recognize the situation you're describing. I don't recognize this massive power. I don't recognize either this total powerlessness that you say some people are evincing. Like, of course, you're being provocative, but like it's it's neither extreme. It's not the end of men, but there are certain trends that are developing that you are absolutely right to identify. I think that's fair. You know, I think you guys are right. I think that's fair. I really do. I think it's fair to say that if we actually look at this realistically, um, there are a lot, like what have we actually accomplished and who have we actually gotten rid of? And, you know, our president is our president, as you said, Noreen. Brett Kavanaugh is in the Supreme Court. Um, You know, Bill Clinton. Take Bill Clinton. Another one. Like, there's just a lot of them up there. So maybe it's early days. Right. And so I'm I'm like a little bit turned around in my own head because I'm like, okay, how do we harness it? Maybe you're like, maybe your small acts of random power is is the way to go, right? There has to be some way of, of... moving forward and not just feeling totally defeated in this moment. And I realized, uh, I realized, Hannah, that I made your sparkling provocative thesis in your in-depth provocative book. I just kind of made them seem really boring. So oh, no, you're not the only one, June. Believe me. I'm just like, <laughs> I, you just brought up the, the PTSD of my book tour. Where it was like <laughs> one woman after another lining up at the mic like, and the next one. <laughs> It was very pleasant. Okay. <laughs> Glad to have brought that out again. Thank you. Thank you, Noreen. Then, honey, your essay is super interesting. It <laughs> Thank really you, Noreen. All right. No, well, it on the note. argue. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Arguing argue is good. Myself. Yeah, that's good. That's that's always that's always positive. So, so listeners, you should go and read the New York Magazine essay. You can read it online or in the actual magazine. There's lots of great essays by amazing women on their experiences of power. Okay. Recommendations. June, you first. So 
I was on vacation, and on that vacation, I didn't even read. I was just like, I don't know, doing nothing, being jet lagged, going to stationary stores. But I did read a book that I found like on the shelf. You know, sometimes in inns or hotels, they have a shelf where like people have left books. And I wanted a small book that I could put in my backpack when we were on the train. And so that was the reason that I read The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. And it's a book by a dude, not only that, but like about the failure of men or some men to understand women um, and specific women in their life. But it is a great book. It's, it, as the title suggests, it has an amazing ending. Uh, and for all of that kind of preamble that I've given, it's a great short novel. And so The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. I got that at a used bookstore this summer and haven't read it yet. I, but it's been sitting on my coffee table, so I'm going to pick it up now. It is short. It's very I'm short. It's short that. and small. It's great. Um, so I'm going to recommend a documentary called Roll, Red Roll by Nancy Schwartzman, which I just saw. It's about the Steubenville assaults in Steubenville, Ohio. It is so good. And it is so good for this reason. You know, it is, you know how like if you go on campuses these days, there's all these movies made to educate women about sexual assault. This is the movie to educate men about sexual assault. It is about the whole incident, but it's a lot about the bystanders, the people who took if you remember, this was a case of a high school football team that really brutally assaulted this woman and then lots of women and then lots of people um, videoed it, which is which is how these guys got caught. Like their friends took videos. There was all this, like Twitter exchange about it. Um, and it's about the dude bro and this sort of extremely passive dude bro culture around the one the, the one guy seems to be like the villain and then um, and then there's everybody else. So so the thing that's really moving about this movie, it's about the everybody else. And I think um, about the real everyman who sort of gets every boy, young man who gets caught up in this situation. And so it's one of those documentaries I saw and I was like every campus right away. Like like it doesn't it's not like one of those that makes you feel like, yeah, it's terrible. It's just like you really learn how this behavior comes up and and how it spreads and like what is rape culture? That is rape culture. You can just see it on the screen. It's a really good movie. And she she sound designed it. I would talk to her afterwards and there was a she had a young guy sound design design it and it's very like punk rock. Like it's very it's like clearly I, I think aimed for men to watch watch so roll mm. red roll see it wow. show it to your sons noreen i have something very different um during the brett kavanaugh hearings i just wanted something that was like comfort food you know um and so i started reading this book that i'd heard about for a long time and never picked up um home cooking by Lori colwin do either of you know it or her she she was a novelist and um but she was mostly known for she you know she won a macarthur genius uh, oh, fellowship she was like a fancy novelist but um but her novels have sort of been forgotten she died young she died at 48 and what has endured is her writing about cooking um mostly for i believe gourmet magazine it's been collected in this or many years ago it was collected in this essay collection and she lived in small new york city apartments um and wrote very charmingly about the kind of screw ups of cooking and settling on um, you know, sort of this gentle cuisine. She this this was written in the eighties or maybe early nineties a little bit, and so it's kind of a document of that time. Some you know, broccoli rob was introduced as a as a crazy ingredient that you might want to try. But it's very it's 
Um, but it's like, we're just like, like, Oh, oh, broccoli, Rob. I know we sound terrible, (laughs) Yeah, but if so, first of all, it makes you realize how far cooking has come and like her recipes aren't necessarily things I want to try. Um, they are, they are sort of old fashioned food, but her writing about it is just so charming and sweet and, um, funny and, you know, and she's very open about the, the, you know, the, the strictures on cooking in a New York City apartment. And it's just like, it's just such a nice thing to read a little essay before bed. And it's very cozy. It's a cozy piece of, um, piece of writing. I think I am going to make her, there's a, there's a somewhat famous mustard chicken recipe that she has. Um, it's a, like a two hour recipe. So it's not exactly a weeknight recipe. But, um, yeah. So home cooking. Mustard chicken. I'm going to do it. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, to production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. You can tweet at each of us individually at our names. You can subscribe on iTunes, which please do and leave a comment so all your friends find out about the show. Uh, also, reminding everyone that we are having a show in Miami on November 17th. So go road trip with your friends. It'll be really, really fun. And for more information on the Miami show or to buy tickets, go to slate.com slash live. That's it. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back next week with our special political midterm episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.